Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter. Okay, everybody, take a deep breath, because we have reached the conclusion of this particular series. Today, we'll complete the story that we started with Brandon Ebel and Billy Power and all those guys. And that was back in November of 2018 when we started this whole thing. The tooth and nail scene began with house shows and community centers and businesses being started by ambitious kids. And then it intersected with the Jesus movement and Cornerstone. And then it merged with the larger Indian punk scene. Then it not only went mainstream, but partnered with a giant global corporation, sold tens of millions of records, including multiple gold records, and held positions as high as number two on the Billboard charts with artists all over MTV and mainstream radio. And it turns out there really was a peak to all this. And of course, nothing stays the same, but the story did not end. Like everything in life, there's seasons of growth and seasons of change, and the two are not always correlated. Sometimes the most important and necessary changes happen in the absence of growth, and in fact, when things go wrong. Sometimes difficult situations outside of our control force us to do hard things that are long overdue, but necessary nonetheless. And this is where real stories and new stories are born. Almost every good story has a point when it could have just all ended and the story would have never been told. But to go through hard times and live to tell about them often produces the most valuable information to pass along. And I know that this happens to be that moment that a lot of us around the world find ourselves in right now, facing what seem to be impossible situations. And it's our job to find a way to make it through and let this be the beginning of a new and great story. So in the story of Tooth and Nail and Brandon Ebel, in about 2010, the future seemed almost hopeless. Now we know most record labels and bands don't survive long-term anyway, but that was especially true from 2008 to 2012. Only a few made it through. Most bands broke up, most labels went out of business or sold or consolidated, and that's indies and major labels alike. People's consumption habits changed, their taste changed, and the scene itself changed and it almost died. When everything that has been working stops working, there's an effect of bringing you back to your core principles and what's really important. Sacrifices have to be made and courage, problem solving, and decision making under pressure become fundamental. The silver lining, of course, is that those who are already DIY and used to taking risk and sacrifice and hustle and those motivated by deeper things have a better chance to ride out the storms and see the other side. Like I said, this is the final episode in this series, but just the beginning of the future of this podcast. We spent a year and a half just constructing this universe, and it's certainly the case that we've skipped over and left out hundreds of key figures and stories, but we felt like it was important to move through the timeline in this way, and now we are free to do three things that I'm excited about. Number one, we're now free to go back and encounter an unlimited cast of characters and stories from any point in tooth and nail history. That's the main thing I'd like to do. Also, we're going to cover the more recent history and future of tooth and nail in our scene. And third, we'll have the opportunity to expand the universe a little bit and include some characters, bands, and stories that lie in the broader punk, indie, hardcore, emo, DIY scene that the tooth and nail world is interfaced with and overlapped with so well over the years. So now I have to give a massive, massive thank you to Jim, Brandon, and Adam, particularly for believing in this podcast and trusting me 
with their story. It's just really been amazing. It's been a lot of work and out-of-pocket costs for them, and that is really a special thing. It's a wonderful recipe as old as time for doing something meaningful. It's the collaboration, support, and funding all put together to make something new. The biggest part of that recipe, though, of course, is the listeners and the support and the people that truly create the environment for new projects and art to live in. Without a community of support, there is no scene, there are no podcasts, and there are no bands and very little music created at all. It really is important, the environment in which these things are created, and that's you guys. I've spent my whole adult life creating things more or less for this community and ones closely related to it, and it's hard to even imagine what I would have done with my life if I hadn't almost by accident stumbled into this whole world. It's extremely meaningful to me as the regular world was clearly not really the right place for me, but truly I found a world where I feel like I belong and can be myself and do what I think is valuable. So sincerely, I want to say thank you to you all. So starting from the classic crime, and Matt McDonald talked about that a lot on the last episode, is how they had failed what they actually thought their objectives were. And it seemed like your objectives were the same, to make classic crime a big mainstream radio rock type of band. Do you see that whole thing as a failure, that the project of classic crime? Well, I think being owned partially by a major label, yes, and we lost money. But for them... I don't think it's a failure because they actually have more fans than they would have if they were a local band from Seattle and now they can crowdfund and make cool records. And who's to say they don't get a TV commercial next year and all of a sudden they stream 30 million. I mean, anything can happen, right? So he was the very first person to ever tell me, you know, Brandon, if I could just have 5,000 loyal fans, I could probably make a living doing this the rest of my life. He told me that near the end of our uh, record relationship. And I thought, whoa. That's kind of that was kind of when people started thinking of the new way of thinking about music. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. with in the digital age, how you could actually have five or six thousand people that are totally loyal to you that could go to all your shows and buy all your shirts and interact with you in a digital way where you're in a club and you know all that's just because all the new technologies made it so great for everybody to be able to do stuff like that. So that was when crowdfunding had first come out. How did you receive that as a label owner? Did you see it as a threat or something, new model that rivaled yours? Yeah, so I think for me, when I started out to do Tooth & Nail, right, it was to create this cool culture and create this label that was different from any other that kind of had a Christian backdrop. It was also open-minded to people that weren't Christian and you know the whole thing. And then after that, you know... in the 90s, the main thing you could try to do would be get distribution and be able to record an album because it was so expensive, right? And then we moved into the kind of the digital age with downloads. And then you moved into the whole crowdfunding segment, right? Right before streaming. And 
I think it was I think it was a good thing because I think any artist that had a brand that had gotten to a certain level, like Classic Crime's a great example, that maybe he was disappointed in the way it went for him. He did though gain a certain level of notoriety. So he could use crowdfunding and he had fans that wanted to support him. And it was an awesome way for artists to connect with their fans and the fans could like you know, personally help the artist. So I always thought that was really cool. Tooth and Nails have always been a little odd because we've mostly built our reputation on signing brand new artists who can't crowdfund really, right? Because they're brand new. So um, we're more of a risk taker record label. I mean, we have, of course, signed other bands like recently Devil Wears Prada, back in the day Living Sacrifice. There have been other bands we've signed over the years that have been on other labels. And we always will try to do that if it makes sense for us. But yeah, but I mean, I thought that was an, that was a crazy time where everything was changing and, you know, becoming new. And it was definitely, obviously, once your artist is out of their contract, though, and they know they can crowdfund, right? Then it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do for me? Like, what value do you add? Does Tooth & Nail or Solid State BC add for us, you know? Which, in a mm-hmm. lot of ways, is good and healthy, I think, because it just add, it makes us want to up our game and become more relative and um, add value. I think for them, their expectations weren't met. Ours weren't met. But I think that, you know, they have a cool career going and are making records and making a living doing it, which is pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. I mean, if this was the 1980s and that happened, he, you know, they probably wouldn't be doing that. They, Mm -hmm. you know, unless they did a reunion tour occasionally, right? But I don't know if they would be just popping out music and as much. Because of the big tooth and nail push and the opportunities that you gave them and lost money on, they then were able to go forward from there. So it's kind of... You were kind of a loser in that situation, but it benefited, you know, in the end, it worked out good for them that they found a new path. Right. Yeah. That's just the way it goes. Sometimes people lose lose money on, on big bands. Well, is yeah, I mean, so, yeah, of course. I mean, the thing is, is you have a long-term horizon. So when you sign an artist, you want to put out several albums and you want to build their career. And I'm not going to name names, but I have some artists have put out four albums, five albums, 10 albums, and still never made any money. But long-term, your, your hope is that you want to make money, but the part... For me, at least, Tooth & Nail is not just about getting a hit or making money. It's about creating a culture and supporting artists. And then hopefully, you know, you have some artists that hit. But it's not like a major label mentality where it's like, we will spend zillions of dollars on every single band and then we'll get the next Halsey or, and that will fund the label. That's kind of how they roll. They roll in a whole different way. So we're, what we're trying to do is put out cool music that we love and help new artists and, and establish artists if we can, for sure. In a commercial sense, this is at the time when you invested a lot in there. It didn't return. The music industry is collapsing. You're in a, a, a sinking relationship with EMI. So does it start to become apparent? Yeah, which was, it was interesting, right? Because part of me just thinks, hey, if EMI could just buy me out, I could just move on because they make my life miserable and they make it difficult for me to, I mean, to leave as well, right? It's kind of both. I can't really leave and I don't want to fire all my friends. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, my staff, my friend, my staff are my friends or, you know, a lot of them. And then at the same time, though, you, you want to try to go do it differently, do it leaner, do it different, but it, you can't in their system. So so you depended on EMI to pay your friends at that point, right? right. Yeah. But by 2010, it's, you're, I mean, you're in a strained situation with everything, right? Oh, yeah. When was it final to you where you're like, okay, I want this to end? 2008 and nine. <laughs> and, and what is the exact situation in which you're like, okay, I want this to be over now. So in 2001, they bought 
part of the company and I had very low expectations and I like, you know, did tenfold what they thought. I signed all those bands like Under Oath and Jeremy Camp and Thousand of a Crutch and Amber Lynn and May and Emery and Haste the Day, Norma Jean and, you know, the list goes on. Hawk Nelson. I mean, many, many artists that did very well. So then I was kind of the golden child for a while. And then in 05, I re-signed up with them and... All, all was great until digital downloads started really taking off and people were just buying songs for $1.29 and not albums. And all of a sudden they were getting a little bit frustrated with me because they would make their bonuses based on like partly on my performance, partly on other labels' performance as well. And that's just not who I was, right? Like I, when they signed me, they just said, do whatever you want. So I kind of figured every year would be a bonus for them, you know? So I built this thing up bigger and I wasn't performing the way they had hoped I would. And so at some point it got real frustrating because I felt like, you know, I was making a lot of decisions quickly, trying to make them happy and so forth. And so around 08 and 09, it became very frustrating because that was the time of the financial crisis. And it became even more extreme um, at the label. So you know, they'd want me to lay off people that even though we were profitable and, you know, there was a lot of just a drama that was involved there. So did you have regret at that point by the time you get to 09 and 10? I mean, it's a hard one to wrap your head around, right? Because in 01, I sold for different reasons. And then in 05, I stayed on because I was doing so well. Um, you could say I, I would have regret, but hypothetically in 05, if they did buy me out, I wouldn't own Tooth & Nail today. So they would own that. Mm-hmm. So I guess if I look back, um, you know, I don't. I, I, how do you say that? Because in '05 they would have never gave me the opportunity. So what was it uncertain? Like what did you, what did you think was going to happen? Where were you at emotionally? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people going? in 2008 um, were frightened and things were uncertain. You know, you the whole economy was crashing and I had all this pressure from EMI and it just it didn't become the tooth and nail records that I had always had, right? I had the Tooth and Nail records of the 90s, and then that's a whole, there's a whole documentary on that. And then there's the Tooth and Nail of the 2000s, which is the kind of the Warp Tour bands, and Jeremy Camp and Cutlass on the Christian, you know, radio side, and um, kind of everything we did was awesome, right? All right, in this next section, you're going to hear a conversation with me and original Tooth & Nail kid, longtime head of A&R and bass player and Demon Hunter, John Dunn. It seems like that time and that Magnolia office was, everything was really exploding and doing well in that era. Was that like a, from what all you know now too, was that an all-time kind of high for the growth and morale of the office and the employee vibe and the collaboration? Yeah, I, I was fortunate enough to kind of get there uh, right before kind of the second wave, like fully ramped up. I think it was a perfect culmination of, you know, the talents of guys like Derek and John and there's others as well, but the talents that they, talents and experience that they brought in as well, you know, with the bands of Under Oath and I'll include Emery in there, Amberlynn, all those bands were kind of in that same era. And so it was kind of this perfect 
uh, storm in a good way of distribution and marketing and music all, you know, kind of elevating at the same time. You know, it felt good. We were excited about the music. It was cool. It was this indie, like, um, you know, kind of, we felt like an unknown entity, uh, you know, in the shadow of sub pop and people like that. Uh, but people were really passionate about what we did. And then, you know, again, as the music and the marketing and the distribution all started colliding, uh, really, I mean, we were just a bunch of kids that didn't know any better. It was just music was exciting and people were buying it. And we started seeing, you know, 20,000 sales first week, 30,000 sales first week, 40,000 sales first week, just on and on and on. Uh, and it was kind of like, you know, the, the dog that catches the fire truck, like, you know, not even knowing what to do with the success that came and, uh, you know, really felt like we had a golden touch. Like we put out albums that, you know, even the ones that we thought, you know, nobody's going to get this and this is not going to do anything, but we're just passionate about it. And the music's so great. And me without you was one of those. I mean, we loved them as a uh, live artist. They're one of the only bands that I can remember that, everyone on staff like collectively said, yes, this is a band that we should sign. I think it was the only ones I can remember was me without you and Joan Zetta were the two that the entire staff ever agreed on. But me without you, uh, especially kind of during that era of under oath and Amberlynn and the successes we were seeing there, everyone was like, yeah, this is an art piece. It's not going to be successful. It's not going to sell a whole lot of records, but gosh, we love the guys and the music's so great. Um, so then to see that one take off and do really well, it was like, man, can we do no wrong in this era? Uh, and it's, it's really hard for me to even recall a record that we kind of put out, you know, during that, whatever, three, four year span that, that didn't end up being a hit and kind of exceed expectations of what we were thinking was going to sell and what we were trying to do with it. It was a pretty killer time. And, um, you know, staff wise, like, Again, we were young, we were excited, we were passionate, and it was just like a winning lotto ticket, record after record after record. It just kept growing and getting bigger. You know, and I, I, there was a lot of talent and a lot of know-how that went into it, but I think a lot of it was just a perfect storm of like, all this just takes off at the same time and definitely riding high and having a blast. You know, we, we hung out a lot. Uh, we went to a lot of shows together. You know, we'd go to probably at least three shows a week, if not more. So you'd kind of get there in the morning and work until five or six, and then you'd head out with a band and have dinner, and then you'd go to the show, and then wouldn't get home till whatever, two or three in the morning, and then 8 a.m. you were back at your desk and doing it all mm -hmm. over again. And bands were coming in through the day, and the, all the mail order was there, and the warehouse, and the, the stuff was shipping out of there, and there's a studio there. Like, you know, everything was right there in that office in Magnolia. I mean, it yeah. was just... Yeah, Brandon, Brandon built like, you know, uh, <laughs> Shredder's Lair, if you think back to like Ninja Turtles, <laughs> is, you know, like uh, the, the Dream Factory sort of thing. So, yeah, like you mentioned that, you know, we have a studio in the basement, so there's a band hanging out all the time. Whatever band was touring through town, they would come by the office and they'd be hanging out, you know, just random people from around Seattle and friends and stuff. It was crazy lively. You know, it's kind of even amazing we got work done with just all the camaraderie and things that were going on. But, um, you know, we played hard, but we, we definitely worked really hard and every, everyone had a you know really strong passion for what they were doing. So, yeah, I mean, at the time we didn't fully, uh, I don't, at least for me, didn't appreciate what was happening. No, It's like, you, you think this is just life and this is what it's going to be from here on out. And there's nothing but good times. It, it was wild, man. I, I can't think of, you know, some stronger times that I've had.
you could probably punctuate that time with the records you said that everybody was super big on. There was Me Without You, which was not high expectations at all, but everybody loved it. And that really marks the beginning of this era. Now, the other one, Joan Zetta, comes out, and this is 2008, 2009. Everybody's big on it. But one thing is different. Everybody also expects it to be commercially huge, too. So that was different, huh? Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's that's a good call out where, yeah, again, you know, we'd had so much success. Um, Joan Zetta, everyone loved the band, loved the music. Um, it's been a while since I dusted that record off, but I would feel pretty confident in saying that, that it still holds up. If anything, um, I think they were probably too early in what they were doing musically for where uh, that scene was at and where it was going. Um you know, I think if that record came out now, it might even do better than, than it did back then. It was just kind of too early for uh, people to kind of on a larger scale um, get it or enjoy it or understand it. But yeah, I mean, they, that first record specifically was lights out. So, you know, we uh, we paid a lot of money to sign the band. And so, again, with everyone being so stoked on it and we're like, man, this is going to be a smash. This is going to be the biggest thing ever. This is the next Dan Berlin or next Andrew Under Oath or any of those. And, um, you know, it's been long enough. I can't remember the the numbers, but uh, I remember first week came out and we were like, what in the world did we do wrong? Like, you know, we, we followed the formulas and we'd kind of gotten the marketing down. We spent a ton on the marketing, like everything we'd done uh, for those other bands that um had taken off like we we followed the formula to a t and that was like a chink in the armor where uh yeah like we realized it it's not working every the way that it used to well there boy when you started with me without you though at that time there wasn't such a thing as a formula oh yeah absolutely not but so a lot had changed in the way y'all did things across that time period yeah yeah absolutely where you know i think if we invested in the Jonesetta record, what we did in that Me Without You record, it would have been fine. And, you know, been like, okay, but uh, we put a lot of eggs financially into that basket. And it was like, oh man, this isn't hitting and this is, uh, this is bad. things start to change. We start signing some artists that don't pop like the previous. The artists aren't happy. EMI is not happy. I'm stressed. The whole economy is imploding. So yeah, it wasn't a great time, right? <laughs> At that point, you think Tooth & Nail had actually become something different than it was in a way that you it wasn't the Tooth & Nail that you built. It became something different? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't... I, how do you say this, especially for the artists that were on the label at that time? But yeah, 2009 to 2000, probably 13 was a, a time maybe a little bit reminiscent of Tooth & Nail from 99 to 2001, where we kind of lost our momentum partly because I did not enjoy my relationship with EMI anymore, right? I just didn't like them telling me what to do. It's like... So I got, I built this company to hear without your opinion. And now you're grinding me and everything you guys tell me to do is just doesn't appear to be working for me, you know, mm -hmm. but I also am 
in a weird way, you know, partnered with them and kind of employed by them, even though I'm a, a part owner. So you have this conflict of trying to please them and do well for them because they are my partner and I am loyal and I signed a contract. So I'm trying to do that for them. But I'm also, I don't operate that way, right? Like when they say grow your sales by X dollars, it's like, well, that's just not how Tooth & Nail works, right? We put out cool bands and if we get a band that works and then we pour fuel on the fire, right? But we don't just set out and say, well, if we signed a pop boy band, we'll sell X units. So let's do that. I mean, it's just not how we do it, right? So, you know, when I first signed with EMI in 01, they were like, Brandon, you do you, you do whatever you want. We're just here to support you. And that was their, their vibe the first six or seven years. But once we got to a certain level of income for them, then the expectation was now you have to do that every year or grow from there. Right. And I mean, I get it if I was selling like, you know, water tattoos, you know, that you buy for 25 cents and you put a tattoo on your arm or something, (laughs) or like you're selling like bolts or something. (laughs) And you're like, how can we grow sales by 20%? But you know, with, with music to me, I know that's what they do at major labels. It's hard to wrap your head around that because it's like art music is an art and every album you put out is an artist's new piece of art. So how do you grow that? It's like, you know, I mean, you could try to sign artists that are popular in the moment and try to force them to do something maybe they don't want to do and hope that maybe it sells more than it should. But I just don't, I mean, there's some executives obviously that think that way and that's why they do well maybe at a major label. But for me, I feel like if you have a consistent vibe of, of a community and music all together and you're signing things that everybody enjoys and likes and we're all working together as a team, hopefully, God willing, everything works and the bills are paid and what comes of it may come of it, right? I know that sounds horrible as a business person. Once it became totally corporate in that way, in that period, did you become less connected to the day? Yeah, in, of day course. Out of I became label? less connected, more jaded, more weird. Like, got all, yeah, I just started hating it. Like, this isn't, you know, the tooth and nail that I love, right? This isn't what we were set out to do, in my heart, at least. So, how do you think that affected the staff and the artists? Um, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much I let on. I mean, a lot at that point, I mostly was tr- not talking to a lot of the artists, mostly my staff was right. I had 20 people working for me. And, um, I also had little children and, you know, I was at a different kind of a different phase in life, but I, I mean, I mostly was the shield from EMI to the staff. Right. So I was dealing with them the most Jim and I were, but I mean, of course there were some records I put out during that time that we enjoyed. And, we also were still trying very hard, but it wasn't like the energy wasn't there, right? The energy from the 90s, right. you know, the dude that's in some in his bedroom with his long hair and he's all like making silly Super 8 videos and everything's getting crazy. <laughs> and right, and then in 2001, when we got our shit together and took it to the next level and there was that great hype and energy, after that, it became more despondent and desperate and weird. And it didn't have to be. I mean, we could have just reinvented her. If I was just running the company on my own, I would have just reinvented it the way I wanted to do it at that moment. But I couldn't even think clearly because it's like I had to talk about EBITDA and like talk about my bottom line profit and overhead and corporate bullshit that literally is why I kind of sold the company no one to get away from some of that stuff and just make records. And EMI helped me do that at first until I got so big that then they made me kind of reversed it back to where I was, right? 
tooth and nail was pretty insulated from kind of the declines that, you know, EMI, our parent company was seeing, you know, we still had enough punk rock ethos and we were spending uh, even the bigger records, you know, comparatively, we weren't spending insane amount of money on it. It was like, yeah, we, we need to get smarter with this stuff. No more, uh, you know, flying billboards behind planes above Warp Tour this year. But y'all felt insulated from the from the other collapse, at least at that juncture. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think our market uh, was still buying albums and still engaging with music and, you know, whatever we want to equate that to. Um, but it was niche enough that we weren't feeling the effects that EMI was. However, EMI's effects were so big and they were playing on such a grand scale that when they're taking, you know, 50, 60 percent uh, hits, on um, album sales on the scale that they're, you know, spending to make these records, you know, we, we were kind of a fallout because of that. Right. Like, you know, they started really limiting what we could spend and, you know, cutting back our marketing budgets and cutting back our album budgets. And, you know, it, it really took a toll on the staff and, you know, Brandon specifically, um, you know, that was a crazy era for him and Brandon, you know, emotionally took a big hit, right? Like he, this was his baby. He birthed it. It was a dream. It was a passion. Like he'd grown this thing to, you know, be, become this uh, colossus that he probably never even dreamed of it being what it ended up being at the size and the scale and the success. Uh, And then to see that coming crashing down and especially, you know, from my point of view, we were kind of collateral damage. So, you know, I think if we were independent, we could have continued marching on and, you know, being a little smarter with, you know, how we were spending money, we were, we were definitely spending a lot of money in weird spots and fun spots and crazy, crazy stuff. But on the staff side, you know, toward, towards the end of my era, I left, uh, I think I left in 2012. So, you know, staff wise, like we still had a, a strong camaraderie with one another. I think a big part of that was, you know, we were all kind of united around, we have this enemy uh, who's our parent company, right? And, you know, we still believed in our talents and we still believed in our skills and we had sales to back it up and we had successes to back it up. Like things should have continued to go where, you know, uh, it got to the point towards the end of my tenure that um, I can't remember who the band was, but there was some band I wanted to sign, you know, wanted to give them like a $10,000 advance. And I had to get it cleared through like, EMI Nashville would have had to clear it. And then I had to go to EMI New York for them to clear it. And then they'd kind of chain down and tell me whether or not I could have 10 grand to sign a band. Uh, So the band ended up signing someplace else rise or something like that, just because it was months that I could not get an answer on a $10,000 advance. And, you know, the thing was ironed out and, you know, again, our marketing budgets were cut back. Like we couldn't do anything uh, creative with our marketing or even with uh, recording, like we just scaled everything back to the point that it was just bare bones and shoestring. Uh, so it was incredibly frustrating being in, you know, constant fights with them over $5,000 here, $10,000 there. And, you know, it just felt like a, a rudderless ship, like we were kind of lost at sea and EMI was the waves that were tossing us around. Everyone was kind of depressed, right? Like we'd, we'd been at the party and, you know, been uh, the bell of the ball and then, now it's like we're sitting on the sidelines and can't even uh, participate in what's going on, right? We can't sign bands and we can't, you know, uh, do sponsorships to get people on tours or any of that kind of stuff. Like it's all just gone. Uh, but I remember sitting in a tooth and nail just bored. Like I literally, I don't have anything I can do. Like I've called all my bands, I've checked in, like 
can't do any marketing. We can't do music videos. We, you know, can't push another single to radio. Like all the tools that we have or that we have had to, you know, continue a momentum or release a band or record a band or sign a band. You know, as an A&R guy, like I, I was like, I don't even know why I'm here, man. Like I, I cannot help my bands other than just be there for advice and emotional support and whatever else they need. But in terms of like the label side, just got to the point where I was like, man, I'm, I'm wasting my time being here because of the handcuffs that have been put on us. You know, we just felt really lost. So it was really hard. It, it felt like, you know, you're leaving your family sort of deal. And it was like, I don't want to leave these people in the lurch. Like we've li- lived a lot of good life together and done great work together. Like can't leave that underwater. I think everyone was kind of thinking about, oh, I should probably have a plan B. Adam Scatula, I think he might've even been an intern at that point in time. He was interning for me, and so I was like, man, I got, whatever, three months to kind of learn learn by the seat of your pants on how to do this stuff. And, you know, Adam was super smart and sweet and was excited and young and ambitious. So he kind of jumped in and learned on the fly, which is a very tooth and nail way of doing things is just give good people an opportunity and let them figure it out. Um, and Adam, luckily, was on board for that. So, And that's really sad hearing that from an original tooth and nail kid takes this ride all the way through here. And, but it's almost cool in a way to hear you say, to mention Adam that way, who he comes in in a whole new time, um, as it transitions and, and back to, you know, having to jump in by the seat of his pants again, as tooth and nail kind of embarks and reengages on a new era. Yeah, it was kind of the, the time for Adam to take over and, you know, Tyson was focused more towards the BC side of things, but you know, he kind of expanded towards tooth and nail and BC and I don't know the timeline, but it, it was probably, I don't know, I'd, I'd say like six months later or so that some of the layoffs started coming and, you know, kind of that crew that um, had built it from 2001 and on um, started parting ways and kind of people going off and figuring out what's next. And yeah, and then, uh, you know, some obviously downsizing and kind of reorienting who Tooth & Nail was and how they were uh going to be successful and the bands they were signing and everything like that like you know that was that was a whole new era after that point you know i i had the benefit of you know still ancillary being tied to the label you know playing in demon hunter so you know would still be able to stay in touch with adam um adam actually played in one of the bands on the the label that i i was doing after tooth and nail so i would see him regularly and you know see him at least once a week um so adam became an artist of mine and my, he was A&R for Demon Hunter. So I've never even thought about that, that uh, I was one of his artists and he was one of my, <laughs> my artists. So, you know, I stayed in touch with Adam, which is great. And we, we did a much better job the first couple of years, like everyone staying in touch, but you know, as people kind of moved away and started having families and, you know, uh, life changes, um, you know, I still stay in touch with a handful of the crew and, um, you know, now that you're making me feel sentimental, I feel like I, I need to reach out to some more of those people. But, um, you know, I still see Brandon uh, every every few months or so. I'll see Brandon and kind of catch up. And, you know, I saw Jim Worthen at uh, Brandon's wedding a handful of months ago. And uh, Josh Jeter, who was an a guy previously, Josh Jeter and I stay in pretty good touch and talk quite a bit. And, you know, there's always Instagram and Facebook and all those social ways of staying connected. Um, yeah, it might be uh, might be time for like a 10 year reunion of that era coming up pretty soon. That uh, would would be pretty wild. 
it's different than people that had the same job in their 20s. It's more than that. It, it wasn't a job. Uh, there's that old adage, you know, if you do if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. Uh, and we were all doing what we loved, both from kind of a mission and vision, never that anything was written down or codified, but like just that collective, you know, idea of what Tooth and Nail was and what we were trying to do. Like everyone was very strongly united around that. And then again, the camaraderie for one another. And it was just, you know, culture wise, like it, it was about as good as it could get. I mean, we were all still kids. So there was fights in the schoolyard and, you know, pissed off about this and that. And, but, uh, kind of on a larger level, like, you know, we were all on a mission together and like, you know, had each other's backs and we're trying to get it done. So yeah, it, it didn't feel like a grind until kind of that end of the era. Um, you know, as Brandon was gone and EMI had us on lockdown, you know, we still had that camaraderie piece, but like that mission piece, uh, was gone both from kind of Brandon's, uh, driving of the mission as well as just the resources to be able to move forward on the mission. And I think that's what ended up kind of crashing the whole thing. And I assure you it was not what I expected it to be. I still taste its kiss that don't look in my lips. Is the memory as useless as a rod without a reel? To an anger ever dropped, seasick yet still dark. Captain spotted napping with his first mate at the wheel. So then in 2011, I tried to leave. I ended up resigning for two more years because I couldn't figure well, out how How does to that leave. work? How, how does it work to leave and separate? And why did you do When you two more sell years, part of your record label to a company, just like if you sold a small business, right? Let's say you owned five restaurants and you sold part of those to a bigger restaurant chain, right? So there's usually an exit strategy in that contract, right? And the exit strategy was like, you buy me out or I buy you out. Well, they wouldn't pay the number that was in the contract and I could not afford to pay the number that was in the contract. Um, and the music industry at that time was shrinking, right? Because streaming kind of saved the music industry and downloading kind of destroyed it, which sounds bizarre because you think they're one and the same, but they're completely different. You wanted to buy the company back, but the price that had got set in the original contract when the music industry was way high was now a price that you couldn't even yeah, afford and you know, to I buy Yeah, I could back. have probably gone to, like, say, Sony Music or got 20 people to do it with me. But I just didn't have the energy because then I would have had a bunch of other bosses and people, right? And I just don't like that. Like, I'm more of an indie kind of a person that likes to kind of just decide on my own. And they wouldn't take less even though the value was down? You couldn't. Yeah, they would have taken a little bit less. I mean, looking back, if I had kahunas, maybe I could have. I mean, you got to remember this was in the downturn, right, of the, the mm -hmm. world. So we all kind of didn't know what was going to happen. So at that point, it was... Um, I did not really want to go to say, you know, somebody at Sony and say, Hey, do you guys want to buy this back with me? Cause they probably would have, but then I would have had another major label partner. Right. And it's like, I don't know. And maybe, and maybe that would have been good looking back. You know, I can always second guess myself. Maybe I should have done that. Maybe I shouldn't. But to me, the easiest way to get out of it was to let them have the catalog and just get the name back tooth and nail 
and go from there, you know? So that was the choice. You either had to let them have all the... I mean, that sounds really sad from my point of view. It must have been hard. You had to give them back all the artists that you had gone and found and signed and grown. The choice was you could keep the name, Tooth and Nail, the brand, but you had to lose your master recordings? I mean, that sounds like a tough choice. I mean, I got a little bit of cash, you know, but I mean, I got... You know, 10 or 15% of what it should have been. And then, like, you know, in exchange for that, I could keep my name, YouTube, email list, Facebook. Um, I kept a couple contracts. Uh, but, yeah, kind of, you know, I, I, at the same time, like, a lot of the big records were half-owned by EMI already, right? From 01 mm-hmm. on, they were all 50% EMI. So... To me, the name and the brand was more important. I think if somebody listens to like Under Oath Chasing Safety, you know, it doesn't matter if I personally own that master or they do. I mean, I think people just like the record and they're going to go see Under Oath play live and that's it. So to me, I'm not as attached to that as I was probably the name and the entity of it all, right? Right. So in the long run, a record like They're Only Chasing Safety is credited to Under Oath and tooth and nail, but it just so happens I mean, that I would. It's mostly credited. Ninety nine percent is just credited to Under Oath, right? Like mm-hmm. they made but that But the tooth and nail logos on there, and everybody knows that was a tooth and nail release. But it is true that you no longer own or benefit from that release being sold or streamed and things like that. Those are those are no longer part of something you own. Correct, but the music lives on forever. So, like to yeah. me, like you know, I don't. I mean that that wasn't as important to me as getting the platform back, the brand, Tooth and Nail, you know, records, toothandnail.com, all that. So during those two years, they started having me lay off people. And you know, what was interesting about the contract we had is that everything was supposed to be a 50-50 decision, but they control all the money, right? So they say lay someone off, and I said, No, what am I gonna do? Sue a major label that is in infinite money and be tied up in court for two years and spend my life savings, or do I lay them off? I mean you know, when you do a deal with a big, larger company, even if you think the terms are the same, fifty, you know, fair, they have the power because they are the bigger entity, if that makes sense. So at one point, they wanted me to lay off like a huge amount of my staff, so I did, and I had to lay off a lot of these awesome employees that I'd had for years and years. Mm-hmm. And then in 2013, I got the name back, and I had a real small staff, and we just started over again. What was the staff size at, in 10 to 13? What was that? Probably like 20-ish. In the heyday, it was like 26, 25. But you got to remember, EMI was doing all of our back end, including radio and a lot of other things. So, I mean, you could argue that we had the benefit of 40 people or, you know, 50 people. Mm-hmm. Um, so how how many did it go down to from, tw- from 26 nine. all the way down to 2013? You went down to nine people? Yeah. That, so after EMI and you are separated, and so that that didn't have to go to court and stuff like that. It was just that it finally just was so low that y'all could walk. You made a terms to I walk mean, away. It kind of, yeah, it almost kind of went to court, kind of a vibe, you know. Like I mean, mm-hmm. we had lawyers involved, and you know, I mean, <laughs> good times. So and so then you and nine staff have to move forward. Is that was it? Did it feel like relief or exciting, or is it dark looking forward in 2013? I mean, what do you do next? There, you've lost a lot of people and stuff. Um, you know, I kept nine people that I thought we could make it work that kind of had their hand in both the Christian market and the general market. And then, um, you know, I had some people on staff that were more focused on general market and some that were only Christian market. And you know, we're a weird label, right? Because I mean, we're putting out, you know hardcore metal albums, but we're also putting out Jeremy Camp all at the same time. 
So, I mean, you could maybe argue I'm one of the only people in the world that puts out like Jeremy Camp and Norma Jean, right? I mean, you could say a major label might own Century Media and own a pop label or something, you know what I mean? But that's kind of different. Like, it's the same team doing that. So, yeah, we just, 2013, I actually flew everybody to Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which was one of the better trips ever. And we did like cheesy stuff. Like we all went zip lining. Mm-hmm. It was fun. And we, um, you know, we all went bodyboarding and like had a little team building time and it was fun. And then we just, you know, started over and it started off pretty slow for sure. Also, that's where we at musically there genre wise. Like what music is popular in 2010? I can't even remember, but the scene, the warp tour scene that had gotten built and the screamo and all that kind of stuff had, I mean, certainly yeah, no, we were definitely in a down phase on the, yeah, we were definitely in a down phase at that moment, but we did keep our contracts. Did you feel that you had, you know, it was a punk label and you had punk and ska and then I think we were searching for our identity, you know? So mm-hmm. it was clear to you that you didn't have necessarily a tooth and nail. Yeah, I know. I think we had lost our way a little bit. You know what I mean? We, we were kind of trying to sign artists to make EMI happy and we want, I, we just wanted to refresh and circle the wagons and start just kind of like, Hey, what kind of music can we put out right now that we don't want to just only have a bottom line mentality of just making money like EMI wanted. Like what is our, our goals, right? Like what are we going to do here? And like, what, what can we do to have fun again and make it fresh, you know? So, and it took a while. And during that time, the Christian music and the CCM stuff probably was relatively stable. And also solid state has this, some kind of staying power where heavy music like that does remain more so than, than the other, it seems like. Yeah, you know, right now I think Tooth and Nail is like we're Tooth and Nail Records is putting out really cool bands that we enjoy, um, like Mike Main and the Branches or Tyson Botzenbacher. There's several cool bands, and we're just putting out records we really love and enjoy, and artists we want to support. And you know, we believe in them, and at any point, one of those artists could get big. I mean, it's happened with artists before, like Me Without You, for example. Um, and then on the heavy side, you know, Adam Scatula's done a, an amazing job. Um, and we've really built that brand back up again. And that's probably our strongest label right now. Is Solid State? Yeah. It seems like Solid State's been that way just throughout, though. I mean, ever since the late 90s, Solid State has, has been, you know, Solid heavy State, music has Solid a special... State Records has been the most consistent label. I would still say in 2013, though, you know, August Burns Red went to Fearless, though we remain very good friends, and there's no hard feelings at all. Um, they always take our bands on tour, and they're the probably some of the nicest, coolest dudes of all time, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And of course, Demon Hunter consistently stays big and has done well. And then, you know, we did go through a phase where we had lost artists and, and Solid State actually had to rebuild a little bit too. But now we have Devil Wars Prada, of course, Fit for a King, Silent Planet, you know. Um, we just re-signed O Sleeper and Norma Jean. You know, Norma Jean yeah. was a couple of years ago. So, I mean, in some ways, Solid State might be the hottest and the strongest it's ever been right now as yeah. we speak, which is pretty roster. cool, right? Like, it's kind of a good story. I mean, that's probably a highlight of doing it on my own, you know. And But we've also, you know, got to put out Amber Lynn's last album. we got to put out Copeland Records, a May record. So we're doing the old school stuff and also putting out cool new bands as well. The best part about where it is now is that we just put out records we love and believe in and... You know, if an artist that we really like doesn't sell a lot, 
and they want to keep going and we want to keep going, like, it's great. Like, I don't have EMI saying, you should drop that band. Well, we looked at the spreadsheet and I'm an accountant and I'm going to tell you to drop them. Or, you know, that's the kind of bullshit we had to deal with all these years. I mean, and it's and so like, you, no. Yeah, go ahead. You, you listed all those bands and solid state bands and you've got a ton of stuff going now that are, are these And a really, lot of cool new bands too, yeah. Yeah, and a ton of cool Mike Mains and Tyson Motzenbacher and all the great stuff that you got going. What is the co corporate and the staff and the office and the culture like now? It's like completely well, different. Well, so what's really weird is so we... I uh, sold my building that Tooth & Nail was in, and we moved down to Ballard Avenue in Seattle and had this real cool office. We had two people in L.A., two in Nashville. Adam Scatula wanted to move back to Denver, and so he did. And so then the rest of our team was you know, in Seattle, but a lot of them live out in Maple Valley or in Shoreline or even north of there. So last November, December, we had I flew out everybody for a Seahawks game. We had a company meeting, and I was like, hey, let's just become a virtual company. I'll keep a small office on Ballard Ave. We'll like have it, put it in half. And um, anybody who's in Seattle can come and work there. We can have meetings there. I go there three times a week. But let's just become a virtual company, which is, by the way, in the coronavirus world has been great because we're well, already... That's what I wanted to say. That's, that's, it's just know, almost... It's like, God, it's like a God thing, right? It's like, huh? Um, but yeah, we haven't missed a beat, but you know, with technology and the fact that music's digital, it's not like in all of our merchandise ships from the East coast, you know, in the old days, Tooth and I had a big warehouse and we would ship CDs and t-shirts to people on our own, right? Or you send out radio mailers of CDs and now all that's gone, right? It's all digital. Yeah. I think that's an amazing uh, point is that. Now it's totally different, and it's sad. I think there's a sadness to the, the the loss of some of the back catalog and the culture and the big staff and everybody being together in the office. Like that was very very special in a way that could just couldn't be recaptured. It probably wouldn't exist today under any circumstance. And then once you got the company back, I hear it as you're able to do what makes sense for you and your staff. And again, I find that to be the good headspace for you. And well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's very in 2013, 14, and 15, and 16, we were all mostly in Seattle in in our offices. But then, you know, somebody will say, "Hey, I want to move to Nashville or LA," which makes sense. And then we're like, "Okay, you could work from home or what have you." And then all of a sudden, everybody started doing that, and we realized we don't miss a beat. I mean, Jim's been with me for 24 years. And he flew out last October, and I realized I hadn't seen him in six months in real life. And, you know, we just kind of gave a little wow. fist bump. But it's like we talk every single day. And, you're, you know, <laughs> we don't even know. I mean, it didn't even feel like I hadn't seen him, right? It's just a different world where we live in, you know? So it, That's where it's companies and everything's going to go. It's where everything was going to go anyway. And now with the condition and the virus and everything, it's going to really speed up. And here you are having a virtual company ahead. It's just another ahead decision. I slacked every, everybody when this whole thing went down like two or three weeks ago. And I was just teasing. But I'm like, I knew the coronavirus was coming. And <laughs> I decided to get ahead of the curve. No. But I mean, it is weird. Yeah. So I don't know. It's a, it's just, it's tooth and nails head. I mean, if you, if you think about it, I'm 49 years old. And when I started tooth and nail, I had a pager. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and we were besides sub pop records, I believe the second record label in the United States to actually have a website. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we had email was through AOL. And then we, you know, it's funny that tooth and nail me being 49 years old and not like 70, it's I'm almost like an old timer where it's like back in the day we had a pager or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just amazing that we're still doing it. And 
and uh, I'm excited about it. I mean, I'm more pumped on it than I have been in a decade, so... Yeah, it shows. I really can feel that from everybody. And the the virtual work environment, it interfaces really nicely with me, but I'm always in touch with Adam about this or that. And it's just, it works so well. Uh, it's obviously a strength. It it, may, it makes sense for the modern times. And, and, I mean, I think and we do have a cool office if like anybody wants to come and hang. I got every tooth and nail vinyl in there, sweet stereo. We got three desks in there. And I go in there, you know, every week. Um, but it's not like you we used to go to the old tooth and nail, right? And there was like cubicles everywhere. There was a big building and, you know, <laughs> it's just different. Yeah. It was a different time though. It's not, it well, the be deciding that way. factor for me was I remember Silent Planet and Fit for King came on tour. We went out to lunch and I said, Hey, do you guys want to go to the office, grab some CDs, get some t-shirts, hang out? And they're like, Oh, we got to get back for our sound check. And I was like, they didn't even come back to the office. And then I started thinking, and I have some poor employees like Tyson's driving an hour and 10 minutes every day for work. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, why don't we just keep a small office and then just do it virtually? But then, you know, we have our office. We have a cool space if we want to come hang or we all want to get together for a company meeting or whatever. We can do that. Like, we can bring in artists there. We can chill. We can have meetings. But it doesn't have to be this crazy thing where I used to own a 5,000, you know, or actually 6,000 square foot building. It's We don't need to do that anymore. Yes. So, yeah. Well. I feel that it. it it's I mean, this just, is serious insider information. I always said we're never going to tell anybody we're a virtual company, but here I am on the podcast. Well, I mean, it's it's something that you did. <laughs> it's that weird. Was, it was ahead of the curve, and now that's going to be a virtue going forward. It's actually something to to herald and explain. It's just another forward thinking uh, thing by you. But I, I just think that it it works out really great, and to see the company in the shape that it's in, um, for me having witnessed over the years, and even your forward thinking about doing this podcast and funding it at a loss just to tell the stories and to do this has been really unbelievably fun and beneficial for me and all the people that listen to it. And it's just all those things are in line with your character. Well, I mean, it was, I mean, it was your idea and, you know, and all credit to you, buddy. So, I mean, it's been a little vulnerable for sure. And there's, you know, some, it's all real. So there's some negative vibes that come out of it and there's some really good positive vibes, but I think it's cool to record it as we all get older and, to be able to go back and listen to these and just, you know, here's the real story, right? So Yeah, well, it's, you know, the, the central thing, this whole podcast has been, in my mind, really about you as the central character and the type of decisions that you make. And I think the ones that you've continued to make are very consistent with your character, especially at the beginning. It has a nice little arc to it where there is the part where you kind of lost your way and things got out of <laughs> hand and you do have some regrets and all well, that stuff I, really I shows up. I definitely lost my way a few times, right? From 99 to 01, and I definitely lost my way from probably... 2010 to 13, but I mean, nobody's perfect, right? So if I could go back and redo it all again, I people would say I would never redo it. I probably would redo a bunch of things, but in the end of the day, I love where I'm at right now, right? I mean, if I sold yeah. an 05 or I sold an 011, I wouldn't own Tooth and Nail. And like, who else should own Tooth and Nail? I mean, I don't want to be arrogant or mean, but or sounds conceited, but it's like Tooth and Nail is a little company that's kind of like my thing, right? Like, so it's like, It'd be sad if EMI owned it right now. Yeah, of course it would. I, of course it would. And I think the central thing that you do that, sh- that shows up over and over again uh, with this podcast and your employees working from home is that you pick people that you believe in and then you trust them and then you let them do stuff. And that's the, what you do with the artist. I mean, that's the, an obvious thing. You don't micromanage. You know, you do this podcast with me. You let me push and pull and we we'll go back and figure stuff out. And it just it, it's a great, it creates a great work environment for 
new things to be created, new ideas to be tried. And yeah. I think that's kind of some of the central theme of, of what you well, do I, and what this I, podcast is I think I learned about. that in the 90s. Like the first two or three years of doing Tooth and Nail, I started to try to micromanage people. And I realized like I need to have enough knowledge to know what's good, right? To know enough about graphic design, to know enough about music videos, to know to have an opinion about art and culture and where we're going as a company. But I need to know enough to hire people that are better than me at all those things, right? I need to hire Ryan Clark, who, I mean, I did some of the first tooth and nail. I did the Blame 21 layout, right? I did the Plank Eye layout on my own, just trying to figure it out. But it's like, that gave me enough knowledge to know that, like, I'm an average artist. What can I do to find a better artist, right? And that's kind of been my thing is hiring people that are better than me. Tyson's better at marketing than I am, right? Jim's better at running all the day-to-day -day intricacies of the business than I am, right? And on and on and on. So um, Adam Scatula is probably a much better A&R guy than me, though I think I can find bands pretty good, but on a day-to-day -day basis, he is more talented than I am, you know? So, and I think that's a good quality to have, to say, hey you guys do your thing. I'll kind of oversee this whole, whole thing, but I'm not going to get in your business, you know? Well, so. think about all the way back to the kid working in the mailroom at Frontline Records and, and, and wanting to, a talented person that had ideas and, and did not get listened to at that first company. And then to this day, you, you build a company where you listen to other people. I think that's, I think that's a magnificent way to look at it. So does that, do you, does that reflect in your mind very often to think about that decision-making you made even as a young kid then? It absolutely could have not, it could have all yeah, not absolutely. happened pretty easily right <laughs> absolutely is there an alternate reality where this doesn't happen like it could have gone differently and none of this existed of course i mean well remember back in 1993 i offered to i said i have this idea to do this record label tooth and nail records to frontline records when i worked there but um you guys fund it and then after two albums they'll graduate on up to your record label and they turned me down with that idea so <laughs> That would have been an alternate alternate reality because <laughs> I wouldn't have, well, you know. But no, I, I really don't see it going any other way. Like this has kind of been my destiny. So, I mean, I never would have thought 25 years later, right, 26, that in some ways I'd still be doing the record label, but I love it. So it's just in my DNA. Could you forecast 10 years in the future? What, what would that look like? I don't think that's the tooth and tooth and nail way, bro. <laughs> I don't think we, I mean, I don't think that's, I mean, I don't think we forecast like what, what's going to come next. Right. I think we just go with the flow. Stay in the present, man. No, seriously though. Like I think, you know, who knows how it music will be doing 10 years from now. Right. So, I mean, I think we stick to the philosophy that we do, which is help support and, um, our artists where we're at right now today. And, you know, if I have some goal to triple the the size of the company in 10 years, I won't do it. But if I don't say anything and have no goal and just focus on year to year to year. So I mean, no goals is the philosophy. Well, we, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, kind of, I mean, in a weird, well, I mean, our goal is to put out artists, support the artists, put out artists that we love and support them how we can and fulfill our side of the agreement. And they do theirs. That's our goal. And I mean, the rest the rest will come when it may. I mean, if we actually say we we have a goal to quadruple the size of tooth and nail, I don't think that will happen. But if I don't have that goal, I think it probably would happen. That's great. I, I mean, think it. about I the fact that Solid State right now is stronger than almost it's ever been, and we didn't set out with that goal in 2013. Right? We just, you know, so 
I just love the, some of the older artists coming back, you know? That's fun. Yeah, it's it's been a really neat thing to see the music industry actually come back. Streaming be worth something. Artists get paid some from streaming. Bands so, that have been around so coming I back. Mean, it's yeah, great. I mean, here, so here's a key thing, and you know, put this in the podcast, but I always felt like music was the intellectual bitch of intellectual property, right? If you think about there's movies, there's copyrights, there's, you know architectural plans, there's chemistry, right? There's, um, I don't know, like uh, vaccines, whatever. There's all kinds of things. And uh, America's copyright system is probably the third most profitable thing in America, right? That's why we always get mad when other countries try to steal it. And out of all the intellectual property, I think music in two, 2008 was like a, a freebie, right? You just go yeah, on a bit torrent sign, yeah. nothing. Worth nothing it's a bit to torn sign. No one values music. Just go grab it for free, right? But now all of a sudden, people are listening to ads on Spotify and building their playlists, or they're paying ten dollars a month, or some, you know, maybe twenty dollars a month for HD on Amazon or Tidal or whatever. But it's not a lot of money. But and all of a sudden, they're building playlists from the '80s and the '90s, or their grunge playlist, or their hardcore playlist, or their jazz playlist, or whatever. And all of a sudden, people are at the gym listening to music. They're at work listening to music, and all of a sudden, they're consuming music all the time. And all of a sudden, wait a second. I mean, right now you're watching Netflix because you're in quarantine or whatever. But overall, you're consuming music now because your Apple Watch has all the music in the world on it, right? I mean, it's crazy to think about. So all of a sudden, maybe music is not the little last place little bitch on the block, right? It's not last place anymore. I don't think it is. It's actually growing up, the, up, up that chain. And mm -hmm. we all love music, right? 50% of all people play a musical instrument. And if you don't, you 90, probably 90% of all people listen to music. And now you can yeah. just listen to music everywhere you go. And there's little pennies coming in for the artists and it's cool. It's like, it's a growing thing again. And you know, in 08 and 09, it was like, no, you know, none of the artists were getting paid. It was like down and out. And now all of a sudden now we're on this upward, upward, trend you know so yeah, absolutely so who knows where it's going i mean it's definitely better than it was five years ago it's easier to make money in music than it was 10 years ago and who knows where it'll be in 10 years but with, that's that's a it's that's a good thing it's a good feeling There's i mean i potential. i'm bullish on music but i've been bullish on it the whole time right but you know if things change and it's not then you know it's not but i don't think in 2013 i would have thought that in 2020 music would be come as in a weird way, make this big of a comeback, right? So I can't tell you what's going to happen in 10 years, right? All I know is that we do what we do, and we try to do it the best that we can do it. And that's what we've been doing for all these years, and we're going to you know, try to keep cranking, see how it goes, you know? You know, when I think of Tooth Nail, like I have nothing but good memories of it. Um, you know, there's so much good that even the, the hard parts and the dark parts and the parts where it fell apart uh, isn't even really uh, how I feel or think about Tooth Nail. Like all that's kind of whitewashed by the years prior. Um, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. 
you know, really that, that goes back to Brandon giving me an opportunity, right? Like I was a kid fresh out of college that promoted a handful of shows and played in a band, but I had no qualifications, even run mail order. I, I was not qualified on paper uh, to, to run mail order. But again, Brandon's, you know, talent is he just, he can spot people and go, yeah, they've got, you know, the it factor and whatever that it is, I'm going to put them in mail order, put them in the spot and see them develop. I owe a lot in my life to Brandon, even just from the opportunities that he gave me. Um, you know, and a lot of it was like, not necessarily a lot, of, a lot of coaching, but a lot of cheerleading, right? Brandon was, you know, a good cheerleader and he was a fan and, you, you know, wouldn't be prescriptive in how to solve things. He would just say, yeah, go and do it. You'll figure it out. So, yeah, you know, it taught me a lot about, um, you know, how to run a business uh, as well as like how to, you know, problem solve both on a business level and a creative level and working in music and all that kind of stuff. And a handful of years later, you know, hearing that he was able to get the company back from EMI, uh, I was like, it, it's only a matter of time until, you know, Brandon's back on top of the world. Um, you know, again, between his talent of being able to pick people and pick bands, you know, he he has a formula to be successful if, if he wants to. He just, if he spends time and has the energy to focus on it, like Brandon will build the third or fourth or fifth wave of tooth and nail. And I think as long as Brandon's passionate and focused on it, like he will be relevant, uh, in the music industry and, you know, anything else that he wants to do. That's great. It always seems to be one step ahead. And again, I don't know if it's dumb luck or if he, he's really just that ingenious about, uh, the way that he views things and thinks about things, but, you know, kind of rethinking the model. Like I, I don't know of another label that works on a model of being remote and not having offices and not having a central studio or location and things like that. You know, Brandon, especially when Brandon has a vision for something, he he will get it done. Dominate! <laughs> Blowing up! Dominate 98! Blowing up! Ooh, bold lyrics in that song. That is the what Blenderheads is that? The Blenderheads from Wash, uh, Seattle, Washington. Wow, some underground stuff that doesn't sound, you know, like second rate, like you might conceive of underground music sounding. That that they had pretty good, uh, pretty good power in that song. Oh man, great! I, I mean, that's just it. When that's I was listening to stuff. it, I know it kind of just had a nice. So John Dunn was a first-generation Tooth & Nail kid who became head of A&R through Tooth & Nail's peak, and he inherited that job from Billy Power, who was head of A&R through Tooth & Nail's first wave. And also, you heard John Dunn talk about Adam Scatula, who was a second-generation Tooth & Nail kid who was an intern under Dunn and is now head of A&R at Tooth & Nail. I thought it'd be nice for us to go all the way back and hear again from Billy Power, who is, of course, also the lead singer of Blenderhead. And Billy, thank you for sending me this audio. It's wonderful. You know, that time in Seattle was special. I don't I don't think it will ever be replicated. The house shows, the tight-knit scene of bands, the glory years of Cornerstone Festival. Of course, uh, humans are innately nostalgic, and, and that was my time, so I'll never let go of it. But there was an innocence to it. We were young, and we were all just trying to figure our lives out. Marriages and relationships came and went. Bands got together and broke up. People lost jobs. People left to start labels and booking agencies and go to college. And I think the re reverberations of that are still out there and being felt. And it feels like forever ago, but in some ways, just like yesterday, it sounds like a contradiction. But what I mean is that it's always in my mind. 
there's a framed picture on my wall. It's right behind me. I'm standing in Paris facing the Eiffel Tower. It was a trip that I took with Brandon to uh, set up our European distribution at a um, thing called Meetem that's in uh, Cannes in France. And when I was a 16-year-old kid playing in a punk band, I never would have imagined that. I always keep that picture and I put it in a prominent place and wherever I'm living to remember to never let go of your dreams. We ate dinner in the Eiffel Tower and I can just remember just being beside myself and wondering how it even happened. And uh, my ex insulted me once in a fight and she told me that I was a f***ing dreamer is what she said. And I feel now that I wear that like a badge of honor. If we don't have dreams, what do we have? The rat race, the straight world. I don't think I'll ever feel comfortable living like that. In a lot of ways, since I left Tooth and Nail way back in 2003, I have been like a person wandering in the desert trying to figure out what's next. And back then, every day was filled with immediacy and urgency. And we put out over 200 releases in my decade at Tooth and Nail, and there's always something to do. We were always busy. I come in early in the morning and stay late at night. We were just hustling the whole time. Almost all of my dearest friendships, what I call my circle of trust, are from that time. Mike Lewis from Polar, Mark Solomon from Stavesacre, Matt Johnson from Blenderhead, Bruce Fitzhugh from Living Sacrifice, Chris Weibel from Everdown, Joel Martin, who was a fan and is a dear friend, Chad Pearson, who worked in mail order. The list goes on and on and on. I feel so grateful to have been there. It really set the tone for my entire life. And I feel the pressure now to try to do something great with the time I have left. And it's like this weird shadow uh, looming over me. Don't get me wrong. There was a lot of difficulty along the way. We definitely struggled and all went through some crazy shit. But I really don't think I would change any of it. The fact that the label is still running after all this time is amazing. And it's really a testament to Brandon and Tyson and Jim who were all there during that time, my time at the label. I'm grateful. And when I see a new album coming out from August Burns Red like it did this last week or Emery or the Under Oath Reunion Tour or Dashboard Confessional doing an anniversary tour with the Get Up Kids this year and MXPX still playing shows and making records, all of it, it's extremely satisfying to know that it lives on and it still has the capacity to touch people. I think that the music, the faith, all of it, it's as important as ever. And I can still hear Brandon. <laughs> I can hear him in my head saying, what's going on? Or dominate. I never liked that last one. I don't think I missed that. <laughs> You're gonna Well, Brandon, thank you so much for doing this whole experiment on this podcast and getting, getting to this point. We can conclude now this sequential kind of telling the story of this from beginning to end. And uh, I want to know if you'll go around with me, we can hop around this whole tooth and nail universe and talk about individual stories and bands and all that. So, yeah, I was going to say, why don't we start interviewing, you know, some of the bands on tooth and nail or maybe even artists not on tooth and nail. That's a great idea. Uh, but I do want to say that we're free now to uh, go and, and cover all the a lot of stories and bands we've missed along the way. We can go back and do stuff about Dogwood or Craig's brother or whatever. There's plenty of stories still left to tell. Pep Squad. And, yes. So I want you to Joy make a electric. list. electric. Yes. Think of everything, every little story, and we'll do a, an intro where you talk to them, and maybe I'll talk to them, or maybe Danielson we do it together. family. I'm going real, real, real niche right now. And maybe we can. We go outside of Tooth and Nail and tell some other stories together of of bands in the in the wider scene. So all that's possible. But we're, this podcast has been very successful. I credit that a lot to you and your belief in it. The numbers are great. The people love it. Uh, I get a great feedback on it all the time. And so I just, I want to say thank you so much for letting us do it. You know what? It's weird. It's almost therapeutic for me to 
go through it all and it's fun. It's like, it's, it's been a whirlwind. So it's, it's, um, it's been good. And so thanks to everybody out there, all the fans of tooth and nail that listen to this and let's keep going, baby. Yeah. Dominate. Dominate. <laughs> <laughs> My name is Jesse Sherman from Lake Stevens, Washington. I'm a labeled member, and my favorite three Tooth & Nail catalog songs are Young and Aspiring by Under Oath, Travesty by Haste the Day, and Disguising Mistakes with Goodbyes by Emery. I contribute a few bucks to this podcast because Tooth & Nail played a huge role in the development of my musical tastes and getting an oral history of the stories behind the bands that were so formative to me as a teenager has been a real treat. So we're asking you to consider helping us, the labeled members, ensure the continuation of this podcast by chipping in an amount of money that you wouldn't even miss. Matt Carter is our host. Story and editing by Matt Carter. Production management, sound design, editing, and mixing by Riva Hansen. Our executive producer is Brandon Ebel. Special thanks to Adam Scatula, Jim Worthen, Tyson Paoletti, and Marshall Frimuth at Tooth & Nail Records. This podcast is made possible by Jesse Batesel and Jesse's Music Club on Facebook, creativevistacoaching.com, and the rest of the members of the labeled community on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a title sponsor like Jesse for your band, brand, or nonprofit, find us on Patreon at patreon.com/labeled. <laughs>